The Temple Studio is available for all of your recording, mixing, and mastering needs, whether it's on location or via internet file exchange. Located in the San Fernando Valley, the Temple has 40 physical inputs for live ensemble tracking and a production team with over 30 years of experience. To book time, call 213-840-1770 or email tchadt at me.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. Well, it's all over. There's no music business anymore. All your dreams of being a musician are are null and void at this point. We can't work. It's kind of unbelievable. I never thought that I would see this in my lifetime, but I think that we're going to get through this. I don't think it's all negative. I'm I'm kind of half joking. It's it's weird. Never it doesn't seem real, but I think we're going to get through this. I think that human beings need music and it's part of human nature. So once everything uh, calms down and this virus gets under control, we're going to go right back and maybe it'll even be better because people are going to have this time off from live music. They've all missed their favorite bands or favorite, favorite musicians. So I think, and ironically, it's given me the time. Is it ironic? I don't know. I'll do the math on the irony. I don't, I think people get that wrong, but it's interesting that it's given me the time to start a podcast, something I've always wanted to do, and have some of my my great friends and great musicians on here to talk about what they do for a living, and, and hopefully you guys can get something out of, of our conversations and our discussions. Which brings me to today, one of my best friends of all time, Mr. Chad Wright. He's an awesome drummer. He's going to be our guest. He's currently in the uh, member of Bruce Hornsby's band, The Noisemakers, as well as the drummer for The Jacksons. He's also played with Michael Bolton, Shaka Khan, Lee Rittenauer, Keiko Matsui, Tina Marie, Rick James, Gladys Knight, Corbin Blue, Lucas Graybill, The Temptations, Eric Benet. The list goes on and on and on. He's also played on almost every one of my records. He's an amazing drummer and an awesome guy. So without further ado, please welcome Chad Wright. Star. We've known each other for almost twenty years now. Yeah, hundreds of gigs. Yeah, you know, all over hundreds of countries. <laughs> Probably not, but yeah. Well, but maybe I don't know. A lot of them. We yeah. <laughs> probably thirty to yeah. fifty somewhere yeah. in that range. Exactly. So I wanted to talk about your story, kind of from the beginning, and I know quite a bit about it because we're such good friends. Yeah. But you started in Atlanta. I did, born and raised for the most part. Yeah, man, and and Atlanta is funny, exciting, exciting time to have grown up there because um, obviously a lot of great musicians came out of Atlanta, mm-hmm. and a, and a, and a few good bands, man, um, SOS band, Atlanta Rhythm Section, right, right, uh, Thirty Eight Special, that's cool, and Cameo wound up being based there. Cameo is actually out of New York. That's mm. where they started. 
uh, and from, but they moved to Atlanta for the, I guess, I'm pa- paraphrasing from an, an interview from Larry Blackman, but the, the possibilities of what Atlanta was going to become. And right. they actually had a great hand in that. I don't know if they realized that or not, but yeah. they did have a great hand in that. And at the time, New York was not in good shape. No one. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta probably looked really good. And so did you play music in high school? Yeah, man. I mean, I, I, I played when did you start music as, as, as long as I can remember. So yeah. it, it started probably like you or anybody else, um, banging on pots and pans, probably. Right. As, <laughs> I mean, it's true. But at like four, I got my first toy drum set. and So it was always drums. For the most part, I mean the yeah. the first the first instrument I ever took lessons on, not by choice, was piano. Mm. I remember my grandmother moving their old antique piano into our house and telling my mom and dad they will play piano. <laughs> I think that's good. I think that's a good thing <laughs> for kids. Was, it, yeah, you know, everyone should at least know something about should, music. Exactly. Even and if you're going to be an accountant eventually. Well, you, you know, know what? It's mad. It's <laughs> exactly. all mad. Well, that's very true. So, yeah. And piano also percussive. Percussive. <laughs> um, so there was definitely a lot of banging, as my grandmother would call it, banging. <laughs> but um, she had no idea what was to come. You want Just wait. There'll be more banging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait till you see my next instrument. Exactly. <laughs> and now for my next it. trick. <laughs> <laughs> and you were also in... Um, marching band no the marching band yeah we have that in common because i was we have that in common and i actually taught drum line at my high school for That's another right. nine years after i graduated i yeah, <laughs> was yeah, the drum instructor but you know coincidentally the first instrument i ever played in marching band was not drums it was trumpet um me too wow see strange that's, that's why it's, it's there's three of us in this relationship <laughs> exactly <laughs> that'll be explained later. yeah yeah exactly we'll get to that <laughs> yeah um and, and and actually in middle school i in elementary school i started playing trumpet and then um my sixth grade year my aunt my mom's youngest sister was in high school and um, she talked their band director into letting my brother and I be in their marching band, this like little mascot. And so we played. Oh, funny. So here I was. It was great exercise because um, there wasn't too much reading involved. There was reading involved, mm-hmm. but for the most part, this band did their arrangements from ear so uh, yeah. man i trained my ear really well right playing in that marching band yeah um and my dad made a deal with me he's like i'll let you play in drumline but mm. you got to play trumpet oh and like concert band and concert like, band yeah, yeah, yeah. and symphonic right so i could play drums and jazz band i could play drums and marching band but i had oh, to keep cool. up the trumpet and, oh. and the other yeah i actually played uh, well, I, I switched to bass eventually, um, but uh, I f- but I did drumline in the marching band, and I played trumpet through sophomore year in the orchestra. Ah, so and it, it wouldn't be like every day, but whenever they needed horns and turned into a symphony, then I'd be one of the guys. Did yeah. you ever switch to any other brass while you were in there? Well, no. My my brother played saxophone for about 
eight seconds. And uh, so when he got it, though, I was like, oh, that's cool. So I grabbed it immediately and just flew through his book, you know, and like, you know, I wasn't any, ever any good at it, but uh, for a second, it was around. I remember I, I uh, we had a, ta- a talent show at, at school called Pops Festival at high school and somebody was doing Kokomo by the Beach Boys. And so I was like, oh, I'll play the sax solo. And I played it for the audition and they're like, um, we love the act, maybe not so much the sax. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll go back to bass. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really pursue it. And you mentioned that you have a brother. I do. He looks just like me. Because we're twins. Looks exactly like me. <laughs> I'm an and honorary he triplet. Sax too. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> and now he's a guitar player. So guitar. his sax playing went as well as mine did. It sounds like I don't know. But you have a brother, yeah. Shay. He's a guitar player. <laughs> And uh, we, the three of us, have done tons of gigs together as yeah, well. No kid. And uh, so that's that's cool that you've had the whole journey has kind of been with him, with the exception of you moving to LA and him staying in Boston. But you've not you've not done this alone. It's kind of right. Were you always playing together? Or? Uh, I think playing together was haphazard. In in other words, uh, like in in. Obviously, in middle school and high school, we had a band together, mm-hmm. and and then the bands and whatever in high school. And um, when we got to well, when we went to our first college, we played in all the ensembles together. Mm-hmm. When we got to Berkeley, you could see us split because mm-hmm. he was film scoring major. Wrong. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. He was business management major. He. Started, he wanted to go into film scoring, and then he decided he wanted to go into the business side. Got but you. that being said, he was always producer engineer. And so his focus was always in production engineering right. of some sort uh, in writing. And mine at Berkeley, even though I started out at as an MP&E major, I mm-hmm. switched to professional music. Got so yeah, so at Berkeley we we didn't really play a lot together, Guy, which is funny actually yeah. because that's the first time I saw both of you guys, and it just seemed like every recital I went was both of you in the band. Wow! So to my from my perspective, I was like, oh, those are the twins again. That you was know? probably <laughs> probably one year, one year. Like yeah. Well, I was only there for a year. Oh, year okay, and a half. so then that that would yeah, be it. That yeah. would be the year. Yeah. yeah. And so, were, were did you always have your sights on Berkeley or? Yeah. 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 Um, the conversation. My senior year in high school was, I'm going to go to Berkeley. And my mom and dad were there, and they had a, there was a financial guy that came to the house and hmm. with the book of all the colleges. And, you know, yeah. this is tuition for this college. This is tuition for that college. And I specifically, he'll deny it, but I specifically remember my dad saying, no fucking way. <laughs> I'm paying that much money. Yeah, yeah. For college. <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. we were all kind of blown away, like, this is Ivy League. This is Harvard right. level. Right. We didn't even think about it until that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. um, Did you get scholarships and stuff? Or? Yeah, I got a partial scholarship. Yeah. Uh, which helped. So do you think it would was worth it, the money? Oh, yeah. Because I get into conversations a lot with the drummer that I play with currently, and it's just about, because he's kind of a finance guy on the sure. side, too. And nowadays, you're going to come out of Berkeley with... 120 grand's worth of 
uh, where the debt still you pay, know? i'm still paying my scholarship uh, my wow. uh my student loans off wow yeah, yeah. wow that's yeah that's incredible pretty sad so he's always like don't do it but i'm always like i get where you're coming from but for one education is important and this is a business where you can easily just be like oh i play pretty good guitar and then you can make a living and and you can do it but the guys that are at the top most of them are educated at at this point yes and I look at it like this too, as I tell young people, even when Berkeley calls me to get to donate money every year, as mm-hmm. they, I'm sure, call you. Right. Um, yeah. And that, that kid on the other line is going, hey, man, am I going to be able to live? Right. Can I yeah, make a yeah, living yeah. doing this? Mm-hmm. It's it's cool for me to, to assure them, yes. I mean, obviously, you do what we did and anybody else out here who's had any sort of success. Uh, you, you work hard. But to me, the networking at Berkeley, yeah, as in any college, mm-hmm. is what it's all about. At, at the end of the day, that's what, to me, college is all about. The yeah. degree is there, which I did not get. Right. And I, it's not like you're not going to get great musical experiences there, too. I exactly. Mean, it's, it's an intense and, and Because that's be. just it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, w- with those experiences come networking. If you make, mm-hmm. Your, mm-hmm. If you make an impact somewhere in a zone there, um, that network will take you through the rest of your career and so many guys obviously i'm jumping ahead but the high school musical band i mean right. that was mm-hmm. that was five out of six guys who all went to berkeley at the exact same time right yeah exactly um, yeah that's so what i say too it was a networking thing or if you look at um the guys on the voice that band most of those guys went to school they went we were all there together right um and those those friendships and those connections and stuff, they last a lifetime yeah. if you let them. Yeah. And you come to town with already a network of people that you can kind of plug into. Like I went, exactly. I can't remember the guy's name that was the head of the Berkeley LA when I got here, but you know, I went right to oh, him. Oh, Peter and, Gordon. Yeah. Peter Gordon. Exactly. I knew it was like a famous guy's name, but not that Peter Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, but uh, yeah. So, oh, Peter and Gordon is the name of a band from the sixties. And I was like, oh, that's not, anyway. Um, so anyways, it's cool to be able to come here and plug into those people. And when you get here too, there's the Miami university guys. Yep. There's, you know, there's the Berkeley guys. There's, there's the North Texas North guys. Texas, and yep. like, you know, there's little pockets of people that you can yeah. kind of plug right into. So, and in the end of the day, I only went there for three semesters. So my debt was paid off a long time ago. Yeah, I but, was there uh, for four years. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people don't graduate. No. But even just being there and being able to network and being able to have a number by your name, 93, you know, is when I, when yeah. I got out of there. Um, you know, it, it matters. And it's probably worth some of the money. And like, you know, work hard, get scholarships. I don't know, get yeah. good grades. I don't know. And that's the whole deal. But yeah. I'm always this like education, knowledge is power. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm such an old school guy about that. And and I also so, always say like the better you are, the more gigs you can have. Exactly. The more skills you have, the more gigs you can take. Exactly. And, you know, knowing how to read and stuff like that. Exactly. And, you know, don't, pretty, a, don't underestimate the reading as I tell the young folk. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So after that, you stayed in Boston for a while. I stayed in Boston for a while. Um, I got my last semester there. No, second to last semester. Uh, another uh, great bass player, uh, Damon Ebner, who uh, he and I 
friended each other throughout school. He came to me one day and he says, hey, there's this band in Boston, uh, this cover band. And they're looking for a bass and drum replacement. Uh, the old guys are leaving and do you want to audition with me? And it was funny because, and we can get into this later about metaphysics. <laughs> At the time, I didn't know anything about metaphysics. I just remember uh, like maybe a day or so before seeing him, I said to myself, I need a rock gig. Because mm. my playing, it was really good, really solid. Um, and I was listening to a lot of, you know, pop, um, R&B, and kind of contemporary jazz. Mm -hmm. But I realized that I needed an edge. Mm. And I wasn't going to get it. And I needed to get the edge on the spot, like, you know, on the job training, so right. to speak. Yeah. And I knew it would come from rock. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just went, this is a perfect opportunity. Whether I get the gig or not, the least I can do is learn the music, try and learn it exactly the way the guy played it on the record and, right. and go from there. Right. So we go in and we, we, we uh, audition in one of the tea, room, tea rooms. <laughs> Those of you who are familiar with 150, 150 Mass, yeah, yeah. <laughs> know the tea room. Lots, and, of, uh, lots of hours in there. Yes. And um, so we started playing the stuff, and it and it felt good. The first thing the producer said after we played was, "Yeah, okay, that sounds good and solid." And then he's like, "Man, I noticed you got this thing." He's like, "Your snare is just just back behind," and it was funny because it was something I was working on. It was mm -hmm. something that I picked up from John Bonham, mm -hmm. uh, the English right. beat, as it's known. Right, the snare sure. is just behind. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not doing that now, although I've been working on getting that back. But mm. So he picked up on that, and then we played another song. And as we're playing, I dropped the stick <laughs> in my right hand. So I just started playing the pattern with kick and snare, and I was playing quarters with my hi-hat foot. Uh -huh. And he stopped. He says, yeah, that's it right there. <laughs> went, okay, cool. Wow. So we got the gig. And um and then I stayed with Mark for um till that was ninety four. Wow. So it was fall of yeah. ninety four and I and stayed. And that was with Cat Tunes. Cat Tunes. Cat Mark Morris and Cat Tunes. Right. Which would um morph into and morph I mean we had a dual personality. <laughs> uh the band Morris. So Cat Tunes oh, was gotcha. the cover band mm -hmm. and Morris was the original band. Oh, cool. So it was our alter ego. Alter ego, yeah. Nice. And obviously, if you came to, we would do just more shows where we would just play the original stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously, the originals would get morphed into a cat tune set. Right. And the band, what's interesting about this band, this band was one of the most popular cover bands in New England. Right. So, um, and, and people still tell you this. Uh, Lines were wrapped around mm. whatever building we were playing wow. um, for people trying to get in to see the band. Right. Um, and it was just, it was a fun, and it was a fun and exciting band. Mm. I can't say that I contributed to that because that started, <laughs> I think, 15 years before Damon and I ever got, got in the band. So it was kind of a big deal to get the gig then because oh, you knew about them then. Yeah. Well, I didn't know anything. I didn't know uh, what the fuck a cat tunes was. <laughs> um, the way Damon, you were standing in those lines. No, man. The way Damon 
presented it was, hey, man, how would you like to make, this is no lie, how would you like to make 75 bucks a gig? <laughs> Four or five nights a week. Wow. In a cover bit. Hmm. And I went, yeah, I'm yeah, in, At the right? time, we're like, 75 bucks. And so, so once we got the gig, Mark is talking to us about money, and all I zoned in on was, 75 bucks a gig. That mm. That's pretty good. Right. I didn't zone on the part where he said, and then after two weeks, I give you a raise. Uh, I double it. Oh, wow. And after Jeez. that two weeks, I double that. Whoa. So. Man. So you're making bank. So by the time <laughs> the, the winter of 95 comes around, mm. I'm bringing in maybe 150, 200 a gig. Wow. By the time that I left the gig in 2000, mm -hmm. I mean, I know I was easily, you know, I, I know for a fact I was making 375, Jeez. maybe 400 a gig. That's pretty good for a cover band. That's pretty, pretty I mean, that's good crazy. And, and, and we had, had a, crew. <laughs> right. Exactly. You had a tech and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah that's, that's amazing. Wow. So did you enjoy Boston? I mean, you moved, obviously. So. <laughs> I enjoyed the the experiences of Boston. Mm. I, I didn't too much care for the city. Uh. It's funny because I still don't care much for the city in in terms of terrain, mm. in terms of weather. Right. But oh my the gosh. thing that I will always carry with me are the experiences, yeah. the people that were there in my life, from the school to my first wife to Mark and the guys in the band to. Right friends that i met along the way and there's um, a lot of great music there and the great music yeah and it felt like compared to if you were in new york or something for one it's going to cost way more at the time city's still not the safest place in the world no. boston was like the safer nicer a little exactly. more laid back place it's yeah. a college town people are there exactly. to learn you know it's a totally different vibe the exactly. pressure is a little less you know than a town like la or new york where yeah. it's like no nah, now you're competing with dave weckle you That's know, right. in Boston, you're like, ah, you know, everyone's there sort of to figure it out and exactly. help each other. And there's like a, a community there that, exactly. that feels like that. That's cool. So, but eventually you decided you had to go. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, the weather is a thing, man. The, um, <laughs> you know, that the weather was a very big factor. So Morris, the band was picking up momentum. We put out a CD and it got some attention from some record labels. Nice. And I thought, okay, this is cool. This is mm -hmm. like my Kenny Aronoff effect. Where <laughs> part of a band and then this gets me to the next level and then right. I can go off and I can do my thing right. from there. Right. And um, we never really pursued the next level mm. for whatever reason. I, I don't know. I've never really asked Bart. Mm -hmm. um, we were big fish in, in a little pond, and right. sometimes we're all comfortable with that. Um, but I got to a point where we were playing the same places every night, and, right. and I'm seeing the same faces, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I was very appreciative of the situation sure, that I was sure. in. Yeah. Um, and you're in a pretty big pond yeah. like you're a big fish in a pretty good sized pond where yeah. you can make a living still and, exactly you know especially on the east coast you can go anywhere exactly you know and and so with that the band we were exploring musically a little bit more we were kind of broadening things out a little bit but 
I had realized one night, um, I gotta, I gotta go to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it could have been, you know, seeing my friends on TV, playing with whoever, or, you know, talking to them and they got this great tour, or blah, blah, blah. Right. And so I knew I was, I'm like, and I had gotten to the point, I was satisfied with where my playing was because at that point, because I, I always do a three month mark mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to get better. There's been some times where I, I haven't. And I've addressed that, but huh. but this was one where I wanted to, I knew I got the edge. <laughs> right. You'd now I'm ready to go. Gotcha. Um, and, and that was the thing about LA too. Like I didn't want to come out here without having the edge. Mm-hmm. So, And um, why LA and not New York? I'm, another concrete jungle. I'm yeah. just, and gotcha. the weather. I'm not yeah. a fan of snow. All right. I've lived yeah. in snow long enough even before boston as a kid we lived in chicago for like three years mm-hmm. i'd seen yeah. enough oh snow. my gosh oh yeah forget it yeah i know i'm originally from denver <laughs> yeah. i've i've just i was on my friend's podcast from denver uh, last week as you know interviewing or whatever as a guest and i said the same thing i'm like I just had to get out. I was tired of the weather sort of dictating your life. Like when it's a blizzard and the clubs don't open, then you can't work. You know, right. that that never happens here. No. You know? So oh, if I never see snow again, I'm totally fine. I'm, but I never even thought about it until I got to Berkeley and met people that their big dream was going to LA. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. Because yeah. I, I was originally from New York. I was born in Poughkeepsie right. and my whole family's there. So growing up as a kid, in Denver, I was, my whole goal was just get to get back to New York. You know, gotta go where the people are and whatever. But, but yeah, then I actually just took a well. I was then I went back to Denver after Berkeley and worked there for almost ten years. And LA's not uh, that big of a difference, sort of. You know, that some of the towns in Denver are, are the pieces of town in Denver are, are named the same stuff, and yeah. like the, the streets. And so coming out here, and then just the weather was like, oh man, I I gotta be here. Yeah, this this is. Instantly, I was like, "This, this is weather, it, man." Yeah, my first nine months um, here, it never rained once. It was yeah. always a gorgeous day. I remember yeah. just thinking, like, "Yeah, I know." I remember going Final. to the beach on like December second, yeah. <laughs> being like, "Man, everyone at home is freezing right now, right. and I'm looking at dolphins. <laughs> this is what I want." Exactly. Yeah, and I also remember like going through the hills. You know, because I'm from Colorado, so mountains. So I I look at some of these driveways that are steep and so I'm like, man, how do they do that in the winter? <laughs> oh, wait a second. <laughs> there is no winter. That's right. <laughs> like, this is amazing. But yeah, but not only that, though, it's like, if you get, it's the same type of thing as Boston or New York. You go out any night of the week and yeah. just get your ass kicked. Yeah. There's just so many great players and they were playing the music I liked. And this this place is kind of a... I always wanted to be a road guy. I, I, I liked studio stuff, but I just wasn't. I'm more about travel and hotels and live audiences. And and LA is more of like the players are out all the time when they're in when they're home. They're playing, so you right. can go right up to them and get gigs. You know right. what I mean? Or like offer your services. Whereas um, other towns like Nashville, you go out and it's more like songwriters everywhere exactly. and stuff so you have to sort of and and they tour a lot so the touring guys aren't necessarily playing out right. at home all the time they're not always home you know right. um not impossible obviously but in la it was just more like this is where you go to get a road gig 
You know? Yeah, right. That's exactly it. I was I, at Berkeley. I was torn between studio and live because, yeah. you know, and and particularly, well, Steve Gadd is the reason why I play drums anyway. Like mm-hmm. at five or six years old is when I discovered Steve Gadd and hadn't processed yet what he did as far as was it a road thing or was it a studio thing. I just heard him and went, I, I got to get that. Right. But when I got into middle school and started getting Martin Drummer and started, you know, really listening intently to records, I was always had in my mind that I would be in like a pop band, yeah. like Duran Duran, but then I would be the studio guy. Yeah. You know, so I would be like basically a Jeff Picaro or but those were my heroes in middle school and high school, like Jeff Picaro. J.R. Robinson, right? Uh, Larry London, mm-hmm. uh, guys, and and the reason why they were my heroes at that point was I started to realize they were playing on so many records, and they were so the records would be vastly different. So it could be an R and B record, it could be a country record, right. it could be a rock record, it could be whatever. Right. And these cats were just chameleons. You yeah, Mike Beard, think- all those, and and that's when I went, okay, maybe I want to be the studio guy. And that's when I started playing everything. Right. But then when I got to Berkeley and I realized how much I enjoyed playing out. Yeah. Yeah. Then I went, you know what? Maybe, maybe this thing, this touring thing is a, a thing. And then the drum machine was so prevalent when we were coming up. Right. Right. That I did see a decline in Session stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, without even yeah. being a part of it, just as a young person going, huh. Yeah. Yeah. The world's changing. Yeah. So that's where But I luckily, can... most bands at the time, even though you have the drum machine on the record, you've still got you a band. still got to get... Uh, you know, Madonna had... That's right. Madonna yeah. had the best, you know, players in the world, yeah. even though it's a... You know, half the music at the time she was putting out is all sequenced. Yeah. But like Omar Hakim is playing it, you know. Omar or or, <laughs> like, um, or um, Jonathan Moffat or um, um, uh, Tony Thompson. Yeah. So and those yeah. were like three of my favorite guys. Here yeah. again, these were guys yeah. that were. Um, these were guys that were heroes of mine with Jr. and Procaro and Larry London and Mike Barrett because. I knew of them playing one style of music, mm-hmm. and then I find out Omar Akeem is playing on Let's Dance, yeah. or he's playing on Money for Nothing. Right. Cool. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, that is Moffat playing yeah. on um, Open Your Heart. So, so, yeah. Well, I think that's why we hit it off, because that's, that's the other thing, too. Like, bass and drums, to me, in my head, as a producer, as a player, it's like, if I don't got a drummer, yeah, there's nothing to hold. There's on nothing to. I can do. And I'm you know, a frustrated like, bass player, <laughs> and I'm a frustrated drummer. So <laughs> it's like, but it's also that diversity because it's funny that you said a big pop band like Duran Duran. Of all the pop bands you could have picked, I'm a huge Duran Duran fan. You know, and like not everybody is, and you can you can nitpick it and be like, oh, these guys are sort of hacks, and this is goofy music. But if you really dig in, like they're playing their asses off. No, yeah, and, and uh, it's pretty incredible. And John Taylor, one of the most underrated bass players of all time, I, I, in my I, opinion. I agree. Um, And I think Roger Taylor is one of the most underrated drummers of all time. And and what was appealing was um, those guys 
had so many different influences and they figured yeah. out a way um to to fuse them together in a great formula. Yeah. And and a yeah. lot of bands came from where they're from. That mm-hmm. whole Sheffield scene mm-hmm. in the UK produced so many great things. But right. man, w- w- what other entity could could fuse a Bowie and a Sheik? Yeah. yeah. And a, you know, a Velvet Underground, like all these mm-hmm. different things into one. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think that that's sort of a lost, like when I was coming up and you were coming up, like the whole point was to be as diverse a musician as you could. But now it's like, I don't see that happening as much in, in kids. Like, oh, this is what I do. I'm part of this scene. Or... It's not impressed upon. And, and the way I say to to young people, if I'm giving a lesson or if I'm talking to them is, the one thing that I, 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 I emphasize when I was at Valdosta State and decided to really go to Berkeley was, Okay, I don't want to starve, right? As a musician, exactly. I don't want to be the starving musician that everyone talks about. So mm-hmm. w- now that I've decided drums will be my bread and butter, what style of music will be my bread and butter with drums? And that's when I went, okay, well, I'll definitely do the pop rock thing, um, for sure. And 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 I loved playing jazz, but I at that point. In 1989, 1990, it was pretty apparent that <laughs> jazz musicians weren't making what um, the Return to Forever guys were. I mean, right. it, it was different yeah. then because For Chick sure. Corea had an electric band or Herbie Hancock had come out with Rocket, so he crossed over. Yeah. But they were they were only doing them, which was they weren't getting stuck in like Miles Davis. They weren't because they came from Miles School. Right. Um, they weren't staying in one bag they were just going to explore and and basically like if you want to come for the ride come for the ride right but for me it was i'm gotta make money at this yeah 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 yeah. i'm i'm you know as a musician i'm probably not going to get super rich but i'm definitely not going to be starving yeah yeah and that's one thing i realized when i got to la too i was looking around like man these these musicians that do what i do in denver have houses and cars and you know nice gear and like they have lives they have families they're yeah. actually supporting like it's a living out here yeah whereas denver i mean if i made 20 grand a year i was i was i was yeah. comfortable as i could be you right. know obviously the cost of living's less but when i moved out here it wasn't as bad as it is now i mean i moved out 2000 so right. 20 years ago and it wasn't as bad. I had an apartment in Denver for like 975 bucks a month, two bedroom, two bath. I found a place in Pasadena for 925, like two bedroom, uh, one bath. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it wasn't as bad. It was so it was totally doable, and guys had houses, and and uh, so I was like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get here. And it doesn't snow. Oh man, forget it. And right, beaches and mountains. It's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> I know, crazy. And then what was your first gig? When I came out here? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. The first gig was I subbed for um, Ron Minog my second or third week in L.A. at the Baked Potato on Sunset. Uh-huh. Doing the, the house band uh, jam session for Jay Gore. Jay Gore was running it. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And, I, I, and you know, and that was the thing was... Um, 
Jay so, Gore's an awesome guitar awesome player guitars. in town. Yeah, man. Um, he does a lot of smooth jazz now. He does a lot of smooth jazz now. He was with Mindy Abar for a long Mindy time. Mindy Abar for and a long then, time. Now uh, he's with uh, Warren Hill. Warren Hill, yeah. Um, he did Hillary Duff. Right. Yeah, Hillary Duff. I recommended him for Lauren Hill, the Miss mm-hmm. Lauren Hill. Um, <laughs> which, and, you, which you have to address her as, or yeah, if you're allowed to address if her. If you're allowed to address her. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> anyway. Um, so that was my first gig, man. Wow. And and then cool. my second gig was I answered an ad in the paper. No, Musicians Contact. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. I signed up for that. Yeah. That which uh, by the time we got here it was an online thing. That's right. And then you. Uh, that's right. I, I did the same thing. Yeah. In fact, that's how I met Bobby Williams. Who someone we'll get to in a minute is through Musicians Contact. Wow. <laughs> and Bobby was a he, he played at this bar in Monrovia called the Brass Elephant, and uh, we eventually ended up playing there tons. And that's right. uh, he's passed away now, which is a drag. Yeah. But uh, that was quite a fun gig. That was another uh, another eye opening thing for me in terms yeah. of playing. Man. Oh wow, that, interesting. That, oh yeah, that gig that that gig and being introduced to Bobby and the three of us, and then that world that opened up. That was a very that was another pivotal moment. Wow, for me in my playing because I played music that I known about but never played never had the opportunity to play yeah and bobby was like so loose about anything like if you kind of knew it he's gonna play it yeah and he didn't care just be musical yeah you know so that made it pretty fun because there was no no pressure no consequences you know and and if it was a mess then we'll do it tomorrow and it'll be better you know (laughs) go home and listen to it if you want to or don't because he's not gonna right (laughs) he's gonna play it just as wrong as he did the night before (laughs) Uh, but yeah. it was a lot of fun. In fact, like, you know, it's called the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast, which is a song and a record that I put out that you played most of, except for that song, which is a drag. But and anyway. that's my favorite song on the record. Oh, man. Well, you're, you're, it's because you're humble. Yeah, <laughs> no, Bernie. I'm not. No, man. I'm, I call it like I see it. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think about that song and what I wrote about that song, it was kind of when I, I played the Brass Elephant. It was pretty much any time I was home, it was always my weekend gig. Yeah. If if I was home and I wanted to play, I could play. Yeah. So, and it, I just, and Bobby was just, he, everyone knew him there. He was just a, uh, so, and he brings in me, this this new kid, and talked me up. And, I, you know, I was kind of the dive bar rock star there, you know. And in that place, I was pretty popular yeah. and famous, you know. And at the time, I was playing with Keiko Matsui, and I'd come back from Russia. I'd be in Russia for a month or whatever, and all these crazy things that, you know, the people around me, it was pretty impressive. Like, yeah. most of the people in that bar had never been to Russia, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was uh, it was home, you know. It was yeah. a really homey feeling, and and we could play whatever we wanted. And it, it was like, okay, take a solo and do what you want to do. And, uh, yeah, I was, I'm, I'm glad that that was, that was the case oh, yeah, because, man. you know, I was, I was just like, Bobby, you gotta, you gotta call Chad. Yeah. <laughs> He's gonna be perfect. His life changed. Uh, but that's, you know, that kind of goes back to what I was saying too, about the versatility is that that's what I just love playing about, uh, love about your playing is that I'm kind of the same way and we can go anywhere we want and it's just so freeing, yeah. you know, and you listen, you know, and, and so I just yeah. feel like we're a machine and we're yeah. always kind of moving together and we have the same instincts because we listen to the same, same music, stuff, obviously, yeah. and uh, you have the same influences drum wise, but that's great. So then we met like probably, probably 2000. 
one, I would, I would yeah. guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was go. I went to Cafe Cordial, which yeah. is also has passed away and no, no longer there, which is a bummer. It was a awesome club in the Valley here that was run by a guy who really loved music, which yeah. is rare. Very rare. And, uh, uh, Anyways, it's gone. But I went in there and to see a band called Hit Squad. I'm pretty sure it was because uh, Noriko, I had met your your now wife, yes. Noriko, who's phenomenal keyboard yes. player, singer. Yes. I like to call her the octopus because yeah. she can play like three string lines at once in the yeah. piano part and sing all at the same time. Um, and she's really great. Hopefully she'll be on the show eventually as well. And then I saw you play, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's the guy that has the twin brother from Berkeley. Because <laughs> we didn't know each other at Berkeley. Right. So really, we've known each other for almost 30 years, probably. Yeah. But, <laughs> but we didn't know each other then. And it was just like, oh, wow, cool. And then um, I can't remember the bass player. Last Tonight Show. Uh, Derek Murdoch. We, Derek Murdoch, yes. He was playing the gig at the time, I'm pretty sure. And then he no, moved to Las I never, Vegas. No, I never played with Derek and Hit Squad oh, interesting. Uh, at all, actually. Oh, it was totally It was John that. Haynes. Oh, okay. Um, who plays bass for Rolls Royce. Got but, you. Because, well, I got a cassette But tape. I knew of Derek. Because... Was he in it before you got there, maybe? He'd done it before. Because oh, yeah, I yeah, got yeah, a cassette yeah. tape that I was pretty, that when Daryl Crooks, who yeah. was running the band, yeah. phenomenal guitar player. This show's going to turn into a lot of names that people may or may not sure, know. Yeah. I, I think we got to be careful with that. <laughs> but uh, Daryl Crooks, uh, amazing guitar player, uh, funky dude. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he gave me a cassette tape, and I'm pretty sure it was Derek on it. On it was it, Derek yeah. on it, and probably um, Daniel Bayerano. Was playing drums. Got if you it. got that the same right. that, tape right. that yes. I got, yep. it was Daniel. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. So anyway, I saw you, I met you, and eventually I, I'm in the band. Because I had met Daryl, actually. That's how it all worked out. Because the first place I came was Stevie's, mm -hmm. which is also no longer there. No longer there. And I went to see Derek Edmondson on, on sax. Yeah. Edmondson at, uh, at Stevie's. He was hosting the jam. So that's where I met Daryl. And De you know, Derek got me right up because the guy from Denver had known Derek you know blah 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 when you get here it's like whatever you can do whoever you know you just go for it you know yeah. especially if you if you really want to make a living and survive because i didn't i didn't work a day job or anything i had a i, I came out here with my then wife mm -hmm. um and she got a job <laughs> so nice. you know and so it allowed me a little <laughs> more time to get going but at the end of the day man i had to pay my rent so you know i'm gonna do whatever i can do yeah but anyway, I'd met Daryl at Stevie's, and then he's like, oh, come see my band. Yeah. Well, it was phenomenal, as it always was. It's fun gig, man. And, uh, and then I, I feel like the first time we actually played together was at a Hit Squad rehearsal. Yeah. And it was like, oh, man. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, oh, man. <laughs> and Noriko said, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the four of us did a lot of stuff. That was the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was super fun. And that led to Ollie Woodson. That's right. Which was my first Japan tour. Yeah. And that was really fun. I mean, it was an experience for sure. <laughs> Holy cow. And, you know, another guy passed away. Yeah. Um, but that taught me a lot for sure about uh, music and touring. I mean, again, first time to Japan. Oh, my gosh. That was so much fun. That was fun. I still remember <laughs> the, the last night drinking beer and then going to Yoshinoya and Plus, we got like kidnapped in Tokyo. That's right. No, not in Tokyo. Nagoya. 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 But it was so crazy because we came out of the hotel and there was a couple of, or was it one guy? It was one guy. It was like one Japanese guy. Yes. Came up and he's like, You guys are with Ollie Woodson. 
And then like, honestly, at that time, I didn't, I didn't realize Ollie's popularity, I guess. Like I knew he was part of the Temptations, but it was like the later part of the Temptations, sure. when, you know, wasn't really what I would listen to. Right. At the t- I wasn't aware of it. You know what right. I mean? So to go to Japan and him just being like huge in, in a lot of ways. And yeah. this guy just saying, oh, oh, well, let's go to dinner tonight. And I'm like, okay. And we show up after and it was like, Ollie's not going to go, but we'll go. Yeah. So it was the three of us? It was three of us. It was me, you, did, and uh, Mariko. Uh, did Art go? I don't think Art went. I don't think Art went. Art I think was it was smart. Just th- yeah, exactly. I thought we were going around the corner. Yeah. And we get in this car and it's like James Brown everywhere and all this R&B stuff and lights and stuff. And we just start driving and it's like an hour and a half later, we're in the middle of rice Nowhere. patties. And like, we're all about to get killed. Yeah, Are there Japanese serial killers? I don't know. I've never been here before, but holy cow. <laughs> but then they then we get out and this is like this house that had been converted to a restaurant and they're just food, free food everywhere. They have this cool bar with all these records and like old soul yeah. records and turned out to be really neat. It's but cool. I, I really thought we were going to die. So did I. It was like this... <laughs> This is going to suck. How are we yeah. going to explain this? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow. I hope someone knows. How so we explain this? Maybe this is how we all get famous. You know, <laughs> it's funny. The only thing that was in my mind to relax me during that was, well, this is Japan. They don't really kill people here. Right. They're too nice. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. We find out later. It's, yeah. Well. As in any other place, dark sides. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah, I have this... Um, tattoo on my arm that's the japanese symbol for soul but it's like two characters but if you cover up one of the characters that's the sign for devil Ooh, (laughs) which i didn't realize until i got to japan the first time with it and my shirt sleeve was right there and they were like yakuza which is the japanese mafia because apparently that's what they get on their yeah they're the only people that really get tattooed i'm sure the kids do now but anyways uh there's definitely a dark side I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast. As a new podcast, getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road, uh, or off the road, as the current case may be. If you would like to support the podcast, all you gotta do is subscribe wherever you listen. And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun, and once again, thank you for listening. What else did we do at that time? We were doing we, Richard Street. We did Richard Street. Another Temptations yep. guy, really great. Yeah. Um, that was pretty fun. Totally different dynamics. And I think that music. all sort of led to this band, Clockwork. Yes. That was really fun. Gary Patrick, cover band. Another another pivotal point in my playing. Yeah. Well, it was it was a five night a week gig in vegas yeah. probably two to three times a month yeah in the first first month we were out there for like five weeks or something yeah. i feel like well it all started with uh we played at the brew pub actually one that's time right. the first time that you played with gary yes who was the leader of the band that's right and then eventually the avalanche the mirage um wanted us so we basically kind of moved to Vegas, you know, once or twice a, a, a month and yeah. lived at the Mirage Hotel. Yeah. It was amazing. And the That's only reason great. I bring it up because is because it was such an awesome experience. And there's so many great musicians that played in that band. That, it's, in that band and 
for me, um, that was the turning point for Vegas. Yeah. And a lot of great musicians were out there and there were a yeah. lot of great bands. Oh, and there were two, three bands a night. Exactly. You go to Vegas now and no. you've got to search for a band yeah. at all. Yeah. But back then, every place had a, like the Ava Lounge that we played doesn't even have music anymore. No. It's like, a, it's just it's a, a really expensive bar yeah, right. restaurant. Yeah. But then it was bands everywhere. It, it was it, awesome. It was so fun because we'd get off from our thing and, and, because we only play, what, three hours? Yeah, it was like 6.30 to 9.30. Yeah. We'd be done by 9.15 so they could get the other the next yeah. band on. And we'd was, check them out, or we'd go somewhere else, and we'd uh, check somebody else out. I'd be drunk by 8.30. Yeah, man. All I got to do is get to the elevator, you know, and <laughs> just go up to your room. Up. It was, yeah, it was, that was so fun. great. But uh, Noriko played in that, your Noriko wife. Noriko played in that, uh, yeah. Just some great musicians. That was really fun. And Gene Siegel. Gene Siegel. Uh, formerly of the band the jaeger maestros yes yes he he um changed my life and probably wrecked it for a while he introduced <laughs> me to jaeger meister and that just uh it, it was a very fun companion for, for the next 15 years yeah. <laughs> uh, i still have a bottle in the freezer right now but uh, I, I i rarely partake anymore <laughs> but at the time that Dive Bar Rockstar record came out, it was just there's yes. like three songs that talk about Jaeger yeah. on the record. It was, it was, it was a, very it fun was a way thing. of life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. Because at the same time, I was playing with Keiko Matsui, yes. which I eventually got you on that you as eventually well. Eventually got me on that, and that turned into a couple of years. That of, that of turned fun. into great years, and and here again, that gig, Eric, you like part of like all these pivotal points in my in my career and playing. Well, on the Keiko gig, you've been trying to get me on the gig for a while. Yeah. But there's a backstory to that. So, like, we and I start playing and we got Ollie's thing. And coincidentally, from the Ollie gig, um, before you came along, Melvin Davis played the Ollie gig, played one one show. Right. And um, from that show... Melvin Davis, amazing, amazing bass player. Amazing, legendary bass player. Shaka Khan, Lee Rittenauer. Exactly. Um, Noriko got the Shaka gig, mm-hmm. and and then they started getting their thing together, and and then uh, as a result of that thing and playing that gig with Melvin, I got the Shaka gig. Nice, um, and that was really cool. And then and then from that, I, I got the another connection with Noriko's Tina Marie. So I got mm-hmm. the Tina Marie gig, which wound up being the Tina Marie and Rick James. Right tour, which and, was Rick's last tour. Right, he actually passed away. Wow, on a break from the tour. Yeah. After Rick passed away, we had one more show, and it wound up just being a Tina show. Um, and I was about to go out and do Rick's tour with um, the guy that took Noriko's place in Clockwork, which was uh, Patrick Veal. Yeah, yeah. So we got the call. Well, I found out that Rick had passed away while I was showering. And um, we did the Tina thing, and obviously the Tina thing stopped. It had to. Um, mm-hmm. It just had to. Unfortunately, you know, everybody was caught off guard, and she and Rick were, there's no secret, they were very close. Right. Um, I mean, he kind of discovered oh, yeah. her. Well, yeah, man. Was responsible Produced for her. Produced her first album. Her yeah, career, I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. really, her career is, mm-hmm. so it was, a, it was a big deal. And um, And we had the clockwork thing going. But uh, you and I quit the clockwork gig 
Yeah, eventually they were like, okay, this has been yeah, good. That's it lasted right. a good like they year, this, almost a year and a half. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we're sick of putting Vegas, you up. Yeah. You're going to move. And, you know? and I was like, mm, yeah, no. Right. I love Vegas. I kind of eventually always dreamed of retiring there, but I was like, not now. No, yeah, this no, not this the isn't the spot. I, I had toyed with it only because I was looking at it from a dollars and cents point of view. Mm-hmm. But I remember having the conversation with Noriko and we weren't even... We weren't engaged yet. I was about to propose oh, to interesting. her. interesting. And meanwhile, I had gotten divorced while we were in Vegas. Yes. <laughs> my my right. first marriage ended. <laughs> um, and, and, and my second marriage was just... Just about to pop off. Right, yeah. So <laughs> she was adamant. She did not want to move to Vegas. And at the mm-hmm. time, Ocean, um, Your son. our oldest, mm-hmm. he, he was... Like Kai's age, he was like twelve or thirteen. He was right. twelve. Yeah. yeah. So she's like, "There's no way we're gonna pull him out of school and start." And and right. and I went to a psychic. Yes, I went mm-hmm. to a psychic. I'm not ashamed. And the psychic, <laughs> uh, immediately, I sat down and she says, "Okay, you're at a fork in the road." Mm-hmm. She's like, "You got this opportunity in front of you to move here and make this money, but if you go on the other." road there's a bigger opportunity waiting for you but you got to be patient and you got to know that one is instant gratification and the other one is yeah forever Mm -hmm. and you can make the decision yourself she was basically like you don't need me to tell you right decision i can i I can tell you you already know you don't need to be here right so Right, right right that's when i said okay october 31st 2004, my last gig with Clockwork. Mm-hmm. Not a gig in sight. Yeah, I know. Nothing. Me too. And I... Honestly. I mean, I, I had maybe some club stuff. Maybe well, that's not even. true. I had Kekomatsui. Yeah. but I had none. But Kekomatsui was never enough to live on necessarily, right. just as a sole gig. But So I was taking a... I, I was just done. You yeah. know, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be in Vegas. Right. <laughs> and that's... Uh, so I, I freaked out big time. Um, I didn't go into a dark period, but I just was for November, December, freaking out. What am I going to do? And uh, Ryo Okamoto, who's another amazing keyboardist, mm-hmm. Japanese keyboardist, he um, he called me on recommendation of another great drummer and friend of ours, Jimmy Keegan. Mm-hmm. Um, Who also was originally the drummer, drummer for, Clockwork. for Clockwork. Yeah. Um, Jimmy was back playing with Clockwork and he couldn't do Rio's solo tour between Europe and Japan. Um, and by the way, uh, Rio and Jimmy, or uh, Jimmy's no longer in the band, but Rio's a founding member of Spock's Beard, like one of the most badass prog rock bands ever to yeah. be on the face of the earth. So, um, so Jimmy recommended me for that and and I just was like, okay, all right, let me think about it. And we're on the phone, Noriko's driving, and Noriko says, is that Rio Okamoto? And I go, yeah. And Rio says, that's Noriko? And, and the, put her on the phone. So they go, and they speak Japanese, blah, 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 <laughs> and they do their thing. She gives me the phone back, and he goes, see, man, it was meant to be. Wow. And so I go and I do Rio's tour, and it wasn't a lot of bread, but it was it was... Enough. It was cool, and it got me out. It got me playing another style of music that I'd only toyed with 
maybe mm-hmm. even at Berkeley, not even, which was prog rock. And right, you know, if anybody's right. checked out Spock's beard stuff, it's, it's intense. Yeah. And Rio's solo stuff is even more intense uh, because it's Rio. So they're not stuck into like, they, Spock's beard is never stuck into any formula of a prog rock thing if there is that but rio would definitely put his other mm-hmm. influences in there right you know? so um so i did that for the month of december and i come back home and you call mm. and you offered me the keiko matsui <laughs> gig yeah uh and like i said yeah because i mean i've been a fan of keiko's you know since we were in high school and mm. When we hung up, I literally cried. I mean, I bawled my eyes <laughs> out because I was like, I come home from the Japan tour and I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do now. Yeah, right. Wow. Well, I'm and, so happy that that happened and the timing was right because yeah. I don't know that. I mean, I was a musical director after a few years with Keiko. Um, mainly because she, her English isn't that great. You know, I'm in town. I know a lot of musicians. So I was more kind of an, I feel like I'm an interpreter and like, I would, if we need a guitar player. I'd go find a guitar player, you know? Yeah. So it was, it wasn't a traditional musical director role necessarily. I wasn't putting together the band and making sure they were great. And Keiko came out and we did shows, you know, Keiko was very much sort of still in charge, still in charge. but sometimes she would, she would start to say something and then she would look at me and I'd be like, play it like this. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, And to me, cause like you, you call it, sorry, not to cut you off, but you mm-hmm. call it a kind of unconventional musical director. And I look at it as, it's exactly what a musical director is. He yeah. does administrative duties first or she, right. Uh, yeah. And then the music comes next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pretty much. And I yeah, <laughs> do all the charts, yeah. you know, and, and yeah, I would never have to fire anybody, thankfully, but, uh, that, cause there was always management for that, which right. was awesome. So it was kind of a dream gig in a way, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, you still, it's still an interesting thing and you've been musical director for on a lot of acts and yeah. it's an interesting role to be in because on one hand, if you're interacting with musicians in town, they know you might be able to get them a gig. So it kind of right. opens up doors in a way and people will talk to you that if they don't know oh, yeah. you or they do know you. Um, but on the other hand, you end up kind of having to be a bad guy a lot of times and, and that can get tricky because there's guys that on the Keiko gig came on that did not cut it. Yeah. But they were phenomenal players. Yeah. And like, I would love to do other gigs with them, but I've got to be on your ass because Keiko's not happy. And right. like, that's making, and this isn't about what I think about your playing. It's about what I think about what Keiko needs you to play like. Sure. Because she was not, is not, is not a person who's like, yeah, man, play what you feel. Yeah, She's no. super specific. Yeah. It's really like playing a cover gig. Like, oh, yeah. When I give you the CD, I'm. Just, I want it that. that you believe that fills and everything. Like you might think that Phil was just a guy doing a cool thing that no. night. No, if she doesn't hear that Phil, that's gonna that's throw her exactly. whole thing off. You know. It, you know, and she comes from, and all, all those contemporary jazz acts from that period, they come from that. That's what they yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, right. you know. Well, she's also classically trained pianist from Japan, yeah. so she's got classical way of thinking and, sure. and this is how it goes and you know that's a uh on the musical director standpoint that's one of the biggest things that i learned was ask the artist questions uh-huh yeah 
I'd rather not be in the dark. Mm -hmm. Just tell me what you want to tell me what you expect of me. I remember when um, when Ricky Minor made me the MD for Michael Bolton, and that was like, Mm -hmm. you know, after working with Michael's previous musical director, Chris Camozzi, another just amazing guitarist out of Bay Area. This dude is just insane. And he was, he is a great leader. I mean, just like everybody ever between Ricky or Melvin Davis, you, um, Chris, uh, Doug Grigsby, all these Mm. guys had, the one thing I I learned from them was um, they asked questions. And for me, the biggest thing is, what is what do you expect of me? Right. What, right. Because every artist is different. Yeah. And every and that MD position is different for every artist. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's right. And the thing about Keiko is that we had worked together so much and and her originally her husband Kazu, her yeah. then husband, because yeah. they got divorced yeah. shortly after I did. Um, yeah. um he was always in charge and but he was also a very like he paid a lot of attention to stuff, and like I think he picked up right early on that I got it. Like oh, I yeah. get it. I get how this is supposed to go. So even early on, Kazu would sort of turn to me and like tell him what I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, or so, you know. And so she just trusted that I got her music, you know. Yeah. And that that's a uh, not always the case. I think as a musical director, sometimes it's like you see it a different way than the artist would want it. Yeah. But you do what your you know you do what your job is calls for. This was right. more like. I feel like me and her had a pretty good understanding of sure. what we were doing. So I would just be myself sure. and yeah. it was usually in line. Not all the time. Sometimes she'd go against what I'm saying, but you know, and I'm like, okay, do your thing, yeah. you know, but she was always, she is always super nice. She's yeah. just uh, the way I would tell her, she's, but she's going to nicely ask you to do this until you do it. Right. <laughs> or you go. Right. You know, <laughs> she'll be somewhat polite about it, but right. she's not going to back down. No. Don't think that you're just going to give her lip service and yeah. do whatever. But you came in in the same situation, though. That's what was so great about you showing up is that you just got it. Well, and I can you played in a way that turned her on as well. Well, it was cool. I could immediately hear Keiko's gig was, was well, I, I knew it was kind of a, a Bernie Dressel thing, mm-hmm. even though Art Rodriguez was. The guy that you replaced, yeah. That I replaced. But I could hear, I could, you know, Bernie was on a lot of records, right? Mm -hmm. So I could hear the influence and how important that was. Right. And I I can't, and I heard what Art was doing. So what I made sure of was that I played it as closely to that and particularly the Bernie way as possible. Then when I heard some opportunities Mm -hmm. to put, some chadisms in there. Right. I took a chance. Yeah. And it just happened to line up. Yeah. You know, because really it's definitely Bernie. And I don't know. I'd love to have Bernie on the show and talk to him about this. Bernie Dressel, phenomenal drummer, um, plays his big claim to fame, I guess, is uh, Brian Setzer, Setzer Orchestra. Yeah. He played with him for years. But at any rate, um, Vinny Cauyuta is yeah. really what she's hearing right. like that's really her thing and so i think even bernie is sort of doing Vinny, you know but bernie is one of those guys that is bernie all the time right, so right, bernie's right. version of Vinny was cool alternative now you go and you do bernie but you turn it into something that you do but it's always starting from a place that she enjoyed 
Right. Other guys get on there and they immediately want to do their thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I know that it's it's supposed to be a jazz gig, but it ain't that no, kind of jazz that. gig. <laughs> you know, my my uh, what I tell a lot of people, the secret to my success is um, I do the research with whatever artist I'm I'm going out with or even auditioning for, mm-hmm. and uh, I try and hone in on like who their favorite drummer is. Or you can tell, you can really right. sense, yeah, what artist is 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 happy with what period or what um and that's where i try and go yeah and that that's my first thing is to to capture that thing mm-hmm. after i capture that thing um especially on a pop gig or i'll i'll sit with that for a while before i even start to rear chat in yeah um because i know there's very important for them to get that i mean with 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 michael bolton um, Michael just wanted like the record, yeah, and I was extremely cool with that. And that was mm-hmm. that was something that I learned. Um, where every gig is not for every drummer, just like I'm not for every gig, right? But it takes a very special drummer, scratch it, it takes a very special musician to play the same way night after night, regardless. And and so yeah. you have to make it a game. You have to go. How much more perfect can I play tonight than last night? Yeah. That's and to do always. that and keep the same live energy right. every time. And keep the it enthusiasm. can't sound like right. you've done it the same way for exactly. 30 years. And it's... you can't sound bored. And, mm-hmm. and, you, and it may be, I know it's boring for a lot of guys, but the whole point is, well, maybe the to take the boredom out, you got to go, well, okay, how much more can I dig into this part right. from last night? Yeah. You up yeah. it up like that. It's like yeah. trying to play a video game. Right. And you're trying to get the best score. Yes, exactly. The other thing that's nice about a gig like that, because um, Dwight's not far from that. It's like he, he respects the record and he's he likes consistency. And for me, I feel like it takes a lot of the stress away of like, I don't have to make as many decisions. I know what I'm going to get into. I know I'm going to go out and I'm going to play it like this and I'm going to go home. And yeah. it's, you know, I mean, ultimately... It's a job, you know, right. and and if you honor it like that, then it's not such a mind fuck, you know. Exactly. What I mean? Like, but some guys can't do it. Some guys can't well, handle it. Um, you can't forget that it is a job. Even I, I used to tell my my first wife this: got to love what you do. Yeah, you got to love your job. Mm-hmm. If you don't, what's the point? Right. So, with the mindset of of it being a job, then remember why it is that you you're doing it in the first place, right? Uh, yeah. And if you don't dig it, get out of it. Yeah. But, but it's it it is a job, so you have to fulfill that job sub job description of yeah. of what it is, right? Yeah. And then after that, you know. So how is that compared to now? You're out on the road with Bruce Hornsby. Well, not now. No one's out on the road yeah. with anybody. Um, which we can talk about if we want, but <laughs> yeah. this is a weird time to to start a show like this, talking about how to get into time. the music business when there's no music business. That's right. I it's, think it's a great time to talk about this. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it'll be, it's good because people will be available. Yeah. And we're going to work. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. So now you're you're Bruce Hornsby yeah. and the Noisemakers. You're yeah. actual member of the band. I am a noisemaker, which is still crazy. And me. that's a different kind of thing too. You're not, you know. Um, so how is that playing? wise compared to michael bolton are you playing it like the record or are you just doing your thing is it somewhere in between uh i, I would say it's somewhere in between bruce may um 
disagree are, with me. It is a band, but there is a name in front of it. So there is still oh, someone yeah. that... Oh, know, yeah. You still have to satisfy the boss, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's what I... So if anybody's ever seen any Bruce Hornsby show, whether it's him solo, it's The Noisemakers, or um, he's done... He did uh, a trio thing some years back with like Christian McBride and um, Jack DeJanette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. still blows my mind like yeah. gee whiz so it's it's a it's definitely um it's in the spirit of the grateful dead of mm. we're not gonna play the same show uh every night and we're not gonna play the same song the same way twice mm. ever it's mm. always gonna be changed it's right. always gonna be different so then with that what i've learned is so you've got your parts um the the foundation and Bruce wants, because he's like that with himself, the foundation has to stay the same. Mm-hmm. That is, if there's a specific groove that I have to play or something, I have to play that groove. Mm-hmm. If he says, you could do something, you know, mm-hmm. cool. I mean, we did uh, last year on tour, uh, We inter- he brought back a couple of old songs and really fun stuff. But there was one where I was so... Um, I, for whatever reason, went back into a cover mode. Like I was playing because there was like a lot of loops and stuff. And I was really recreating that whole thing. Right. And so, and, you know, soundcheck, he would say, yeah, man, you, you don't have to be so stagnant. We, you can get off. You can create a more interesting part than that. You know, cool. go ahead, be you. I'm, I'm, I'll let you know right. when not to do something. Right. So I still have to get used to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. of remembering like i'm i have some poetic license here um but that's bruce's thing so and then once we're off we're off man i mean you know if if it's it's total communication if somebody plays something and it inspires someone uh. that person will go with that inspiration and do that thing which will inspire somebody to do something which will inspire somebody else to do something next thing you know six guys have went off on a tangent from one thing and we've created something completely different wow. that's what he wants yeah um, that's awesome and not to mention that i fill in some crazy ass shoes um, <laughs> yeah because the previous yeah. guys Sonny right. Emery mm-hmm. Moyes Lucas mm-hmm. um John yeah. Molo I mean you know these are guys yeah. right um, Mike Baker yeah gee whiz right you yeah. know mm-hmm. uh the company he keeps yeah so it's like that's that's kind of in my head too especially Sonny Sonny's such a yeah huge inspiration of mine um and he loved Sonny Oh yeah, man! Big time. He played the gig well, Uh, extremely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I think that's interesting too. Because like how you come into a gig, sort of, and we don't have to talk specifically, but if you know if you're coming into a gig after a guy's been fired, then don't play like that guy. (laughs) You know, right? But if you're coming into a gig where something happened and the guy left the gig or you know whatever circumstances, but the artist was pretty pleased, you know, play like that guy. Go with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My my money's on. The guy that he or she loves every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> every yeah. time. Yeah. There's plenty of time for you to be you. Right. So um, where does you also now currently also play with the Jacksons? Yeah. You have you're one of the guys in town that have two amazing gigs. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where does that fall in how you approach the gig as far as 
Do you play it like the record? I yeah. mean, I've seen the show. It's not like the record. No, it's not like the record. <laughs> the Jacksons, Jonathan Sugarford Moffat is the right. cat that really put his stamp on the live aspect right. of the Jackson show. So yeah. when I got the gig, I just immediately embodied um, Sugarfoot. That yeah. was the key. Uh, the, the guy that had the gig before me was Charles Streeter. Um, and he had to leave the gig. Fortunately for me, mm. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for the brothers, he had to leave the gig because he got the J-Lo gig. Uh, and Streeter's right. like another cat from Memphis who's just killing cats got the groove thing but he's got the chops thing too and he's yeah. you know just like a great all-around drummer mm -hmm. so um so i had the show tape of of charles but i did basically what he did but in the in the style of sugarfoot mm -hmm. and so gotcha. when they heard that they were like yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get okay, it okay we're cool Right. We're, yeah. we're good. Yeah. And uh, like and, doing yeah. that kind of research will get you the gig, you know, nine times out Every of 10. Time, it's man. so important, man. Yeah. If you take that care and you really care about the artist's music and you put the time into the details of, of all that stuff, yeah. nine times out of 10, that's going to get you a gig. Yeah. And, and on the Jackson's gig, because we have to play it the same way every night, even mm -hmm. my drum solo, everybody gets eight bars. Interesting. And, uh, and it was like, at the beginning of the thing, it was like, okay, this is my eight bars to do my thing. And if it was something I was thinking of, I would work on it and I'd play it. Mm -hmm. And then one night I played whatever I played, which is what I play now. Mm -hmm. And so the next night I played something completely different because I'm like, this is my eight bars. Right. And they just, all four of them were like, no. Wow. Play that thing that you played mm -hmm. the other night. See? And I was like, and that's, what was that thing that I played right, the other night? Right. The only thing I remembered playing was, the only thing I remember doing was the stick toss because mm. I was clowning. It right. was like, I wasn't, <laughs> I was just having fun and clowning. Yeah. And I went, oh, I'll do this. And I did it with the double bass thing and all that. And then I did some, whatever, the 32nd thing that I do around the kit. And yeah. they love that. So yeah. I have had to play that every night yeah. for the last... Yeah, and that might blow some cats' minds. Like, don't let it blow your mind that, like, I know it says solo, but this is what they want. Yeah. You know, and, and do that. Mr. Chad, right! Kind of reminds me of, a, of another gig we played on. Uh, sorry to cut you off. No, great. Another gig we played on Lee Rittenauer that you got me on. Yeah, that I subbed. You know, it was Melvin's gig. He's awesome at it. But I was fortunate enough to be available. Um, but uh, I remember you, you'd always do an impression. Are you gonna twirl the sticks tonight, Chad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if you're a drummer, you gotta learn the stick twirling, huh? You can't really get out of that. Anymore. Well, I don't know. Well, okay. So on the Bruce gig, <laughs> I don't. Oh. Maybe maybe there's one song um, when we play um, Across the River, when we do the um, triplet thing at the end of the uh, guitar solo, I'll do stick twirls. But I only do it specifically to keep me from rushing. 
mm-hmm. and which is mostly gotcha. anytime I'm doing a, a stick twirl, um, huh. it's that my purpose is to keep me from rushing oh, because that's 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 an issue I, I'm still working on to this day. Yeah, me too. Um, that's, that's why imp- we played well. I think we exactly. rush. And we rush we in the exact like same, the same time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's so funny. So, other than that, I try not to do the flashes because then you know. Here again, I think Sonny's put such a stamp on the Hornsby gig mm. that I'm already getting compared to him. Right. Which I'm that's right. the gig. I'm mm-hmm. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Um yeah. but if I were to go and do that thing, then people will go, Okay, you're just trying to be Sonny and and, and right. that's the job description. And it's like, no, I don't want right, to do that right. because, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. but it's also forced me to um because Every other song I'm soloing and, and on, on the Hornsbeat gig. So right. it's forced me to go into places I've never gone before on the spot. Mm-hmm. You know, different sounds and different approaches um, to pull out some musicality that's been pent up inside of me. Or it just never had been in there. I saw something else and went, ooh, let's try that. Right, right, right. Wow. Good exercise. Well, we are um, talking forever and we've, we are, man. We haven't talked about High School Musical, no. Corbin Blue. Let's um, go. Let's skip. But, well, so, no, what I'm thinking is there's going to have to be a Chad Wright part two okay. at some point <laughs> later on because there's too much to talk about. And I want to get to talking about your studio and, okay. you know, uh, I don't know. You keep mentioning transcendental meditation is that where you're yeah uh, i mean i know that you were big into the secret for a minute well that's which, what tipped it off yeah which i i kind of am too yeah. it's like something i don't talk about that much but i've i kind of adhere to it i stopped being shy about it how it came about was so at the end of 2015 november i had gotten so complacent in my playing Mm-hmm. Or I went into a place that I vowed I would never go to. And I was so comfortable and I wasn't mm-hmm. sitting behind the kit like I would normally sit behind the kit when I was home off the road. Um, I was just in home mode, being a dad and mm-hmm. going around doing local gigs and things of that nature. Because it was like, okay, well, I'm home for a couple of months. I'll make the most of it. Right. And uh, Ricky Minor called me for a, a gig he and his band were doing in town and I'd stayed up the night before working on somebody's mix. And on top of that, and that's just nothing compared to, I didn't prepare for the gig the way I should have. I mean, I got, I had the charts and I made my notes and I didn't sit and, and it was groove music, but here and again, I, I, I always play the stuff mm-hmm. down and mm-hmm. really play it down and get comfortable. But I was so tired and I got up and I went to rehearsal and it wasn't feeling right. The only song that felt right was um, Can't Hide Love by mm. Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm-hmm. And Paul Jackson Jr. said something. It was like, Chad Wright, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but it woke me up because we, we rehearsed for maybe another hour or so, went down all the music and stuff. And, and then Ricky pulled me aside. He's like, yo, man, it's not feeling right. What's going on? And there were a couple of other things um, that were happening on something else that I was involved in. And and he, I, I'm not speculating what he was thinking because I never really asked him. I could just tell maybe it was, he had mentioned like, maybe it's the cats that you're playing with right now. 
Because mm. he's like, this is not the guy that I know. This is not the guy that's come in time after time and just nailing it. Right. Um, so I was definitely tired. So Paul's thing was, Paul's comment made me go, oh, wow. Now I know what it means about playing something in my sleep. Because mm. I've played it so much. I know mm. it so well. As right. opposed to the other music where maybe I played it once or twice. Maybe I'd never played it at all. Mm. It was reading my ass off. Uh -huh. So that wasn't the issue. Right. It was the feel and the energy. And it was I was tired. And, yeah. and really didn't yeah. prepare. So right. he's like, hey, I can't use you on this gig. Wow. And it was an eye opener. Because mm. he'd also mentioned, like, I had put on a little weight. Wow. And and he was like, I could tell this is a different cat. Because he's like, you know, you're the guy. Mm -hmm. You work out in the mornings. You run, you know. And right. are you doing any of that? And right. it was like, I'm not yeah. anymore. Right. So at that point, I went, I'm changing. Yeah. And then um, a month or so later, I was doing um, a New Year's, New Year's Eve gig with All For One. Mm -hmm. And my brother texted me and said, hey, The Secret is on Netflix. And I was like, what the yeah. hell is a secret? <laughs> and uh, I watched it in the hotel room. And it was like, I got to get more of this. So I bought the book mm -hmm. and I read it. And then uh, a friend of ours, a close friend of ours said, if you like The Secret, you should check out what the what the bleep do we know? Right down the rabbit hole, mm -hmm. and I watched that documentary, and I went, "Oh man, I got to get more of this." And then that hit me to Joe Dispenza, and then I started doing the meditation thing, like right there on the spot, just little bits and pieces. So literally, like the day before Ricky called me for that gig, I was like, "I'm just gonna try this." So I meditated, and I channeled Ricky calling me. Mm -hmm. And so I freaked out when he actually called yeah. me. <laughs> but after watching The yeah. Secret and, yeah. and, and What the Bleep, it started to dawn on me, this whole metaphysical universe thing. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was off worked. and running. Yeah, it's worked yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, I started maybe four years ago, just every January. We usually have some downtime anyways. I watch the movie. And like every every time I get something out of it that I start to use and yeah. and, and it's almost like what you need is gonna pop out at you sure every time I watch it, you know. Um I haven't gone much farther than that, but I mean it's it's worked like crazy. Like the one year was there's a part in there where he says, uh, money comes frequently and easily. Like yeah. if you just start thinking that then it changes everything. So then every time I start freaking out about money or like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do this month? I would just I would just take a deep breath and relax and be like, money comes frequently and easily. And boom. The whole COVID-19. So, so when I came home from Jakarta and then literally like uh, we did one more rehearsal for Warren's run and then Warren called the night before we were splitting. He was like, yeah, we had to can. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so then it's lockdown. It was like, no questions about it. We're locked down. Yeah. And um, Noriko is freaking out, and I'm not mm -hmm. because of that very thing. Yeah. The freaking out part of it, what is that going to do? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the so, other thing that's been somewhat different about this is like, this is not a bad decision on my part. Like, there's nothing I can blame myself for. We're all in this. And like, exactly. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. No. So, I, and I just happen to be in a good spot place i had a little savings you know and like certain some residuals came in all the right place and i'm just like 
you know what? I'm good. I'm just, I'm just going to take a break. And uh, this is what this is probably. I fear that I've manifested this on all y'all because I just I needed this pause in my life. I think we all <laughs> did. It's, it was funny. I had all the studio stuff backed up. Mm-hmm. And I was going, okay, well, I'll just finish all this stuff in my hotel room. I've never really mixed with inner monitors before, but I got a really great pair and right. let's put them to the test. Why mm-hmm. not? If it right. works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it wasn't anything too heavy that I was working on, but I was manifesting more studio work and less uh, corporate band work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so for me, I thought when the whole lockdown thing came, it was, well, here you go. Here you go. First of all, problem solved. You don't have to worry about yeah. Finding time to finish your deadlines for the studio. Yeah. Here it is. So I was able to do that. And that forced me to really uh, address a couple of things in the studio as an engineer that um, I really needed to address because I come from, I'm an analog engineer. I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> so the digital thing, um, I still was getting a handle on. Mm-hmm. And this provided me the perfect time to really understand and merge this analog world to this new digital world in the way we're measuring sound. Right, so, right. So Yeah, and, and you have a pretty significant setup. You do a lot. Of, the, the great part about you, because I use your tracks a lot, huh. you know, and that's kind of the awesome part about um, just recording in general right now. It's like drummer's got to have a setup. Yeah, Everyone's got a setup. You know, you can call a guy and they'll send you tracks and I never have to go anywhere. And But the great part is that you are an engineer. You did study that at Berkeley. Yeah. So when I get your tracks, I don't really have to do much. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's a journey sounding record yeah. and I get a big snare and it's all EQ'd and it's yeah. all nice and you plug it up. I mean, you, you, you put it in the, in your DAW and it's just great, you know? Uh, but so you've been doing a lot of that. You you yeah. did that for Bruce Hornsby record. Yeah, yeah. The last, um, so the, the last. Record, um, the oh man, it was a fun record. Yeah. So yeah, the last album, and then the album that's coming out in fall. Oh, we tracked. Cool. We did three tunes where we as a band sort of, uh, tracked over at my place, and then I did all all the drum stuff there. And then there's a new album that we're going to start. <laughs> we were supposed to start wow. this week. Jeez. Um, and obviously, when they extended the lockdown, Bruce was like, yeah, okay, we're going to have to wait. Wow. But uh, the whole band was flying out. Uh, well, three of us are here, and then you know, two are in Nashville, and Bruce is in Virginia. So, so everybody was coming out to L.A., and we were just going to take a week and record at my house. Wow. That's <laughs> and, so cool. And, and rehearse for the tour. So yeah. the tour, which has now been pushed so far to August. But Well, Chad, this has been awesome. Definitely think we have to have part two. Yeah, we should do There's part two. There's still so many stories <laughs> we didn't tell and so many things. And uh, But I really appreciate you being on the show. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. You're an amazing guy to learn from. Well, likewise. And because uh, you're also just a great guy you know you're a great phenomenal drummer anybody can look you up on youtube but you're also a really great guy and i think that's such another key part to being to being a road guy in general you got to get along with people you You got to be nice people got to like you to put you on their gig yeah and uh you're you're just a master of both so i'm still working on it (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man well thanks for coming on thanks for having me man i'm a 
This is the part of the show that I like to call afterthoughts and just going to give you some of my thoughts on what we just went through and things that I'd like to highlight. Um, and the first thing is that Chad started in a bar band in New England, which I think is totally cool because he's a legit dive bar rock star. Lines wrapped around the buildings he talked about, which uh, I actually saw them play one time. I was out there. Uh, it was weird. I was in Boston doing a Keiko Matsui gig at Scullers and in Cambridge. And Chad and Rico and Shay, his brother, were doing a, a Temptation gig somewhere in the area. So after both our gigs, we all got in a car and we went and saw Cat Tunes. And they were awesome. It was very cool. And very popular and very drunk. It was awesome. <laughs> the other thing that's amazing about Chad that I think is important is that he still practices. This is a guy with a career like that, and he's still got, you know, he, he talked about the three-month mark. He's still got a regiment that he, he kind of does, you know. And I thought it was really cool that he told that Ricky Minor story because it didn't really go his way. It didn't make him look great. He didn't have to tell that, but that's how honest he is about his own playing and that constant looking in the mirror really keeps his his chops up and that's what it takes to kind of stay on top and have a career like that. So it's, you know, it's really important. Uh I also I played with a guy named Nelson Rangel who's a sax player from Denver. He's you probably know him. He's great. Um uh, but he he practiced eight hours a day. You know, he probably still does. And he likened it to training for a sport. He had the mindset of an athlete. And um, I always thought that was amazing and kind of changed my way of approaching all of this stuff. I'd also like to make some corrections or clarifications on some things that we didn't have time to fully explain. Uh, we're talking about Berkeley College of Music in Boston and not the super smart school in California, which is something you get really used to explaining when you are associated with Berkeley College of Music. <laughs> MPNE stands for Music Production and Engineering, which is a major at Berkeley. And he talked about the, the Kenny Aronoff effect, which I, I thought was a great way of putting it. I've never heard it put that way, but essentially Kenny Aronoff was the drummer for John Cougar Mellencamp in his band. And through that popularity and because of his amazing chops, he became uh, the incredibly sought after drummer that he is today. Like he's on tons of records and plays live with all kinds of awesome artists. Um, so look up Kenny Aronoff. He's great. The Cafe Cordial manager, that was the club in LA that, that I first saw Chad at, his name was Peter May. And if you ever run into him, shake his hand, give him a hug, thank him for everything that he did for the music scene while that, that uh, here in LA, while that place was open. The brew pub was in the, at the Monte Carlo. That was the first place that, I, that me and Chad played with clockwork in Vegas. And that's not even there anymore, so don't go try to find it. Also, I said I was originally from Denver, then I said I was originally from New York, and you're probably all super confused. But anyways, I'm, I was born in New York, I grew up in Denver. Um, and one other weird thing is like, when I was musical director for Keiko, I mentioned that I was more of an interpreter. I don't speak Japanese, so that's I just meant musically, because I kind of understood her music and could relate it to other people. So don't try uh, speaking to me in Japanese, because it, it, it won't go well. Anyways, I hope you had a good time. I'm a Wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to DiveBarRockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com. 
and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. <laughs>